0: Hey Chris, how
1: you doing? Oh God, I'm <laughs> wonderful.
0: <laughs> I can hear it in your voice, I see yeah. it in your face.
1: Well, it's nice to be here, I should say, on the Sausage of Science. Just, I'm suffering from my own. It's sad to say, not my over, you know, drinking or anything like people usually do. My over oversugaring. <laughs> uh, I have a sugar hangover today. So. It's a real thing. It's a, it's awesome. a thing. It's a thing. August is the month of birthdays in my household, so there's five of us, and all five of our birthdays are in August, four of them in the same week, so yeah. that's great, I'm wonderful, I, <laughs> I'm just paying to play. How are you? Well,
0: I'm doing well, but I'm also super excited about our guest today, Malika Sarma, wonderful graduate student over at the University of Notre Dame.
2: You are not biased at all.
0: <laughs> not at all, yes, I should say I'm on Malika's committee, so... There you go. There's the disclaimer for the day.
1: I know. We're trying, what we, we're trying to ingratiate ourselves with the Notre Dame grad students. Malik is the second one we've had on here, yeah?
0: Mm-hmm. We had Rietti on um, a while ago. I uh, think like episode like, 14. So episode 14, and the fire alarm in my building went off during that interview. Yeah,
1: that's right. I would say there must be something in the water, but I'm from Indiana, and I know there's nothing in the water unless it's just in South Bend. And I have been in South Bend, and no offense to y'all from South Bend, Nothing in the water there either. Well,
2: I would argue otherwise. There are things in the South Bend water
0: that you don't want to be consuming.
1: Well, <laughs> it's rather close to Flint, so this is also
0: here's another source of bias for you. Malika and I are both Michiganders, and we are both University of Michigan alums. Mm. So there's a lot of bias going on today.
2: It's fine. <laughs> it's totally go blue
0: always. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Anyway, so shall we get things started, Chris?
1: Tell me about Olympic lifting and how'd you get into this?
2: Okay, so so for power lifting it's the back squat bench and deadlift.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And then for Olympic lifting it is the snatch and the clean and jerk, which sounds like nonsense words. But <laughs> 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 Olympic lifting is a little bit more like technique based mm-hmm. than than just straight up brute force i like i really love it because it feels like it's an intersection between heavy weights and dance mm. and so i grew up as a dancer and I, like i, I started dancing i was like three and a half years old and i've been dancing my whole life and so when i went to college told my parents I'm like that's it i'm not dancing anymore because i mean like i was the kid who like i went i go to school and then i come back you know, four thirty from school, go straight to my dance teacher's house, and then be and then then be in rehearsal until like two in the morning. Like that was my life as a kid, and I would like travel around the world and perform. And so when I got to college, I'm like, I'm a strong, independent person. I can do whatever I want. I'm not dancing anymore. But you you can't live a life of really intense exercise and really intense planning and scheduling and always working out all the time and then go to nothing because you will just lose your mind. Um, so one of my friends got was really into CrossFit and convinced me to do CrossFit with them and I was doing CrossFit and I'm like, you know, I hate every single thing about CrossFit except for the Olympic lifting part because I hate running. I can't run. You know, like you would think that someone with legs as long as mine would be really good at running, but that's a lie. I, I think I just never learned how to run properly and I also like because I was dancing the entire time as a kid I never learned how to sport so like I didn't know how to do any sports like like balls any ball sports are just a disaster so I had all this competitive energy and I had all this like athletic energy stuffed in my body but no skills Olympic weightlifting because I had dance and I had I had a lot of mobility from that and I was a relatively strong person I picked it up really quickly and then I totally fell fell in love and so i went from being like oh this is interesting to full on i'm competing every six weeks going to do it super hardcore because i do
1: everything super hardcore so
2: so that's kind of
1: how i got into it let's put that into context
2: (laughs) yeah of course so
1: so tell us about yourself how you got into anthropology the wonder that is malika
2: ah thank you well first thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast i am a huge fan it's for my dissertation work. I have been driving a lot, probably like six and a half hours to my field site multiple times, and so it's just been sausage of science oh. all the time. <laughs> I've learned so much. It's really great, but yes,
1: a little well, bit. About- you know. Tell us so we know.
2: <laughs> a little bit about me. So I am right now a rising fourth-year graduate student at Notre Dame. I am a PhD candidate. Passed my comps and everything. That's very yeah. exciting. Woo! And I'm leaving for fieldwork next week. Where are you going? Extra, extra exciting. I will be working out of Lander, Wyoming, working with the National Outdoor Leadership School, which coincidentally is also the same site of
0: Kara's dissertation work. Heard of that? You wonder why I'm on her committee. <laughs>
2: yeah, <it is. laughs> but how I got into anthropology? Ooh. So I one of those very odd kids that, you know, I was like eight years old and I knew that I wanted to be a scientist. We had to give a presentation in third grade about their future career. And I'm like, I was, I'm going to be a scientist. And everyone was like, okay, that, that's cool. But it, it never really changed. I, I went to the University of Michigan with the full intent of being an astrophysicist. Uh-huh. Go blue. Was, As you will. I was very ready. Go blue. Go blue always. Go. And my first year there, I realized very quickly that astrophysics while cool is not nearly as cool as humans. So I was a double major in psychology and evolutionary anthropology, which at Michigan is interdisciplinary degree between ecology, molecular biology, and biological anthropology. So it was really great. So I got like the full suite of bios, because I know that Michigan has relatively recent, like in the past, like 10, 15 years, there are a lot of people there when I was there. Yeah, I think it used to be a zoology degree, right? Zoology and anthropology were combined. There was
0: anthropology, zoology, but it seems like they've tightened up that curriculum quite a bit. Yeah.
2: It's super great because you get a really good interdisciplinary approach to anthropology, which I think has really informed my own research and my own perspectives of how science should be done. So mm-hmm. I was.
1: Any oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. mentors there or anything that Yes.
2: You... I am where I am today because I've had really stellar, spectacular mentors. So when I, I was really fortunate to be involved in research very early on, because I knew that I was a super nerd and I knew that I wanted to do research and be a scientist. And so I was paired up with Dr. Kathleen Clerkin. She was a graduate student at the time. And I was paired up with her to do research. And she was working out of the psychology department. And I worked with her up until my junior year when, and then she dissertated and left. But that kind of got me the bug of, you know, I love doing research. I love doing research. I love presenting my work. I love doing like cutting edge, kind of uncomfortable research. So we were researching creativity. And she had created this really amazing scale looking at looking at creativity and how people can become more or less creative based on their experiences that they have. So when people travel, do they become more creative? When they're exposed to things that they're not used to, do they become more creative? And does it help how they think moving forward? And then we also did a lot of really awesome work looking at stereotypes and gender differences. And if you, based on your existing stereotypes, how you perceive gender differences. So it, it was work that's important and cutting edge and exciting to do but my senior year she had dissertated and I was kind of by myself and I realized that I liked more doing badass science than necessarily psychology so I was also because I was a double major in anthropology
1: There's the psychologists out there who I know I know no psychology is amazing it's super great but
2: I realized that my interests were less in like the actual field of psychology and more at looking at these kinds of uncomfortable questions or questions that people don't really like to look at from, from a multidisciplinary point of view, but also like doing badass female feminist science. I really, really love that. So I remember I was also one of Milford Walpoff's students. Wow. Uh, he kind of like actually also liked Kara. <laughs> So he kind of adopted me my second year in undergrad. I, I just took every class I possibly could from him. Anything that he offered, I would take because I just loved him so much. And he was so wonderful. And I would just, he just like had these seminars. He'd be like, what do you want a seminar? And I'm like, I don't know, Milford, what about Neanderthals? And he's like, okay. And he's like a super expert in Neanderthals. So I was in a seminar with him and I, I had been planning on to go to graduate school since my, my freshman year in undergrad. And my senior year, I was like, well, I don't want to be in psychology anymore. Like, what do I do? And Milford's like, Malika, you are too special of a person not to be an anthropologist. You need to go to South Bend, Indiana and work with Augustine Fuentes. And I'm like, I don't know what South Bend is and I don't know what Augustine is, but okay. (laughs) So I looked it up and South Bend turned out to be Notre Dame. And as a Michigan alum, that was a difficult decision for me, but I was like, you know, what, it's fine and then i looked up augustine and augustine is spectacular and amazing. i had no idea and but you know milford was my oracle and just told me what to do and i was like okay yeah sure i took a year off
0: <laughs> He's so familiar because i basically went to wash you because milford told me to go to wash you <laughs>
2: he just knows and I really I don't know if he ever will but I really hope he hears this podcast because he was such an important and special person in my life and I see him at the conferences still and I it just makes me so happy that he exists and he has you know helped so many people
0: every time he still remembers me I just light up <laughs>
2: Having someone who believes in you and having someone who kind of can see the contributions that you can make in the future makes such a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I really appreciated was kind of him acknowledging what an interdisciplinary field anthropology is and that you can do so many things within it you don't have to just be oh i'm just going to do lab research or i'm just going to be an academic and write papers like there's so many far-reaching effects you can have as an anthropologist and so it is a field for everybody and you know like uh, my background research in diversity does help along with that (laughs) thinking but it's something that you know i that's like the the hill I'm willing to die on. is like more diversity, more inclusion, make this
0: field awesome. I feel like, I feel bad for you in only one way in that for Sancho, Roberto for Sancho retired before yeah. you got a chance to take a class from him because I think you two would have gotten along so well And what he, you know, his research is so much in line with what it is you do, which will lead us into our next question. But that makes me really sad because I think he ended up retiring one or two years after I graduated and uh, he would have had a huge impact on you, I think, person to person. I I
2: think so too. I mean, he's already had a huge impact on me because I cite him every single time. (laughs) Constantly. All the time.
0: (laughs) But anyway, so that's a really good lead-in because of what you do. So tell us about what your dissertation is about and what you plan on doing because you're taking off the field next week.
2: Next week. Next week. Yeah. So I am a human biologist, which (laughs) is I think everyone on this podcast, for the most part, for the most part. But I study modern-day humans, specifically looking at adaptation and acclimation to extreme environments. The areas that I'm most interested in are looking at neuroendocrine systems and energetic systems and how that relates to uh, social behavior and and looking at how, how all of these different systems intersect when faced with a novel or challenging environment. And so I work mainly with Dr. Lee Gettler, who is really awesome, and I keep telling him he needs to be on this podcast. One day when he when he actually has time. And I've worked with him looking primarily at cortisol and testosterone. Those are the kind of the two big hormones we do in our lab. So my dissertation work, I am looking at these different systems working in the American Rockies. And I'll be looking at individuals as they go on three-month expeditions and tracking them over time and looking at what are the physiological behaviors mm-hmm. that happen as they're going on these ex- expeditions and seeing if there is a relationship between neuroendocrine systems and energetics
0: and social behavior. So I just have to say, how much this gives me like chills because it is the perfect and next logical step of what I did for my dissertation. And it's completely the way that the field of energetics needs to be moving because no one has looked at the, you know, the endocrine impact and how it might mediate energetic changes, especially under crazy stress. And then the social aspect of it. I mean, with that Knowles population, you've got these, I'll say kids, which is not necessarily true. They're like 18 to 30 years old, but you've got these students on these courses that are thrown with a group of people they have never met before. And some of them have never been in the wilderness before. And so they're undergoing like crazy social stress, crazy environmental stress. And it just, I am so excited you are doing this because this is the work that needs to be done. And I think it's going to open the door for the next wave of where the physiological anthropology is moving. And I'm just so excited. I'm geeked out. Not biased at all.
1: <laughs> out that Kara's waving her arms emphatically.
0: <laughs> I, I'm I just sticky-like. I apologize. You can't no, get that. that the
2: that's, that's good. That's good. Excitement. I've been like trying to hold my hands down because I'm like too excited. But I'm just gonna let. I'm gonna be free. fly? Be, the most be excited.
1: free. I can't imagine the two of you in the same room. You talk each other out. <laughs>
2: There's a lot you we can't have anything on the desks or anything because everything will get knocked down from just excitement.
0: People walking by just get swatted and whacked all the time. It's just the way of it. It's fine.
2: It's fine. Everything it's fine. is fine. It
0: but, makes committee meetings a lot of fun. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> My inclusion in all this is who knows what the others think, but I'm I know Malika enjoys it.
2: So I, I really <laughs> enjoy it. And my my committee is they they I feel like they all
0: secretly enjoy it as well.
2: We are we are the light. We bring the light.
0: We the do. World. We are these like two super like excited and also physically strong women, and you get us in our room, we just go crazy.
1: Get <laughs> excited!
0: Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness! So you've done that. You've done that. So I actually once you finish this amazing, brilliant project that is super innovative. No pressure. What do you want to do? What was that, Chris? I said, no pressure. No pressure, no bias. What do you want to do afterwards? Once you get this PhD, where are you going to take it?
2: Okay. So that is a really great question. My plan is I'm the kind of person that I've, you know, I have a five year plan. I have a 10 year plan. I have a 15 year plan. I'm, you know, and I, it's, it's always been constantly updated, but the overall goal after I finish my PhD is that I want to work for NASA's human research program and do research looking at what is happening to humans from an anthropological perspective when they go to space. When they're doing long duration space travel when we are doing extraterrestrial oh, i hate the word colonization <laughs> it's so, gross. so let's just do extraterrestrial habitation there we um, go habitation and i want to look at this from an anthropological perspective and i think it's really really important the argument that i make a lot of the times when i do speak at space conferences is that you know, in the end, you know, we're trying to get humans on Mars by the t- mid 2030s. That's very, very soon. If we want to get humans on Mars, we need to start looking at what is happening to the entire human organism. We're not sending a single cell to Mars. We are not sending rats to Mars. I'm sure we're going to send them also and do a bunch of experiments on them. Because we need them for more sciencing. But it is imperative that we have a better understanding of what is happening to humans, and not just the individual human, not just looking at one system in isolation from other systems, but what is happening to the whole human. And what is happening to humans in groups if we're sending them into an in- a incredibly stressful and incredibly dangerous environment?
1: Are those dates real? Is that, Are those real targets?
2: Yeah, so that's actually the real target for trying to get humans on Mars. It's an interesting question to ask, because space research is so intimately tied with what is happening in the world, largely politics, and where people are putting their funding. It is so, so expensive to send people You can't really do it by yourself. So you have this interesting conversation between private industrialists. So you have SpaceX, you have Boeing, you have uh, Blue... What is a blue planet? Anyways, so there, are, there are private groups that are sending are right now sending cargo into space. And then you have government groups. So you have NASA, you have the group from Japan, you have the ESA. So that's the European group. You have different government organizations. And everyone is kind of working together. But there is also competition to try and get there on time. So even though they're trying to get there by the 2030s, we'll see if it actually happens or not.
0: So I'm going to interject ever so slightly. Yep. Um, So Heidi Block, who I introduced you to via email, all that stuff. Yeah, you know. So she gave a Science on Tap talk here in June, something like that. Can't remember now. Anyway, she said that the technology is actually there. We actually have the technology to get to Mars, but it is the human aspect, the physiology and the psychology that we don't have yet. Because there's this whole idea of the thing that psychologists do not know how to handle and predict is basically the midway point when people travel to Mars, where they can no longer see Earth and they can't see Mars, and there's nothingness. How does the human mind handle nothingness? And there's no way to simulate that. Because, you know, if they're in a lab trying to simulate it, the person still knows they're in a lab. So there's still something there.
1: They're out of Wi-Fi range at that point, so.
0: They're out of every range. Like, there's no message, like, and messages take forever to get there and get back. She's also said the one thing that's kind of holding them back from this is, like, an official mandate. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we had the official mandate to go to the moon we don't have that official mandate yet to go to Mars. And so you're absolutely right. There's all these, all these pieces exist, but there needs to be that one driving force that pulls it together.
2: And this is like another thing. It's it's the other hill I will die on. I guess I have multiple hills that I'll die on, but this is the second big one in that it is so, so important for scientists of any kind to engage with the public and be public communicators. Because we are doing the legwork, we are doing the the, the the lab work, the field work, to understand these kinds of questions. And if we do not communicate them with the public, if we do not communicate them with government officials, how are they going to be able to make the best informed decisions? And so stuff like this podcast, you know, the all of the tweeting that HBA does, Chris, which is really super awesome, and you know, various blogs and, Science on tap. These, these things are so incredibly important because you never know who's in the audience who, you know, may be an aide to a senator or something that and actually helps make an informed decision. So that's, yeah, that's another thing that I'm just like, science communication all the time.
0: Chris, do you see why I just adore her to know Because I, I'm currently dying on that hill of science communication and excess service to improve science communication. So I am there.
1: Person to volunteer to be a tweeter at one of the conferences a few years ago, they probably met her. So I, I think I told her your energy is why we keep coming back to you. So,
0: totally do. And so the next question I have yes, if the opportunity came, would you be on that first long duration mission to Mars?
2: Oh, 100%. Like, not not even a question. <laughs> I have actually told my family, like my partner and my family, that when this opportunity arises, I will be putting my name for it and I need you to all be supportive. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure, <laughs> supportive, whatever. So I want to work for the human research program, but my ultimate goal is to be an astronaut. I would love, 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 love to do my duty to humanity the okay. first,
1: astronaut in, or first anthropologist in space. There it is, NASA.
0: Listen up, NASA. Get on that. How would you handle the inability to Olympic weightlift?
2: Ah, uh, okay, okay. Actually, that's a really great question. So there is a lot of research that they are doing with the astronauts to try and figure out how to
0: de- reduce muscle and bone mass.
2: Right. The the muscle loss, the bone loss. There's a lot of physiological changes that happen to astronauts in space because you don't have any gravity. Gravity helps us a lot, actually. We have evolved. Helps us? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's unlike the John Mayer song. song bringing us down. It actually is really, really helpful. We as humans have evolved to live within gravity. And so oh. when you placed in a Zero G environment, there are things that are happening, but one of them is muscle and bone loss. So there is a machine, it's called the Hulk. I'm
0: pretty sure. I've seen it, it's crazy looking.
2: And it's a resistance (laughs) machine, and so it simulates doing weightlifting. Except everything is tied down and you like strap yourself in and then you do it. So I, I, I feel like I could like
0: make it work. Kind <laughs> <of>. <laughs> and it's multimodal too. Like you can do squats, bench, and like deadlift all in different formulations of this thing. So we could have
2: pictures of like the actual Hulk too. I'd be okay with
0: that. <laughs> I'm kind of <laughs> hoping to go to She-Hulk for Halloween. So I'm up with that. I'm, I'm down.
2: I, I I fully support that.
0: Fully support <laughs> that. <laughs> because we're having so much fun, we're we're getting short on time, so we might not talk about your your awesome HBA talk, but I, I assume that'll be that's in the works for a manuscript coming. That's up soon, in the works
2: right? for publication, and keep your eyes open for. I have a publication that is under press with AJHB that is kind of the I guess the precursor to the project that I gave at HBA the talk that I gave at HBA, and that is a project I worked with EA Quinn. Jeff Childs, and Lee yeah. in Newbury Valley, yes. Yeah. It was a incredible, incredible opportunity to be able to work there. I've had a ch- I've been able to work in really freaking cool places. This whole, like, I, I feel like this whole choosing to work in quote-unquote extreme environments was a really good choice.
0: Well, you're but fearless, it helps. <laughs> it helps though. You are okay with just jumping into any location and any site and just, like, taking it to task man you're able to do it it's really impressive oh thank you i
2: hope nasa is listening yes i i'm really great in the field
1: well not every grad student lives such a charmed research life how do you find these opportunities
2: well again i i owe everything to the mentorship that that i've received i've been very fortunate to connect with people who really care about me as a person and me as a scholar and are willing to kind of extend themselves out and introduce me to people. So Lee, my advisor, is amazing. I've, you know, I'm his first ever graduate student and I feel very fortunate to be his first ever graduate student. And so EA Quinn was his friend from grad school. And so when I told him that, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm really interested in looking at you know these questions about testosterone and cortisol, except I don't really, like parenthood is not really my area. It's cool, but it's not something that I want to be doing my research in. What I really want to do is I want to do high altitude work. I want to do extreme environments work, because eventually I want to do space research. Um, and he was like, oh, okay. And he's like, let me ask around, let me see who I can talk to. And he got me in contact with EA. And so I was able to work with her for that, for that field season. And then the other project I worked on in Congo was also another project that Lee had with uh, Adam Boyette, who was out of Duke and is now at Mo- uh, Max Planck, and then Shana Lou Levy, who is out of Cambridge. So they had another project there, and they needed a bio person. They're like, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, sign me up. I'll go. And the Knowles Connection is 100% Kara. Kara introduced me to the people there, and they were very generous and were open to doing an extended project so you know i think that one of the this is maybe jumping the gun about like advice to other graduate
1: students that's that's the next question that is the next question
2: and maintain and like it's a garden your mentorship your network is a garden and you have to take care of it because people are really amazing but they're only amazing if you also put in the effort and you show that you care and that you're excited but it can make your life if you are cultivating relationships with people. And, you know, we're very, we're very, very lucky because I feel like the HBA community is awesome. My favorite time of the year are the conferences because they're great. There's a fun video on YouTube of me talking about how great the AAPA and HBA conferences are.
1: Yeah, I remember that.
2: <laughs> I don't know if I recommend it. I, I, in my defense, we were in New Orleans, and I'd had You're caffeinated like, as hell, as I recall. I had like six cafe oles before I recorded oh that. Gosh, yeah, no, it was.
1: It was good.
0: I was,
2: I was coached by Lee before this podcast to try not to be caffeinated.
0: <laughs> please, please. Oh my goodness! But that's also another thing. Don't be afraid to come talk to us, Chris. Myself, I mean, I, I know it can sometimes be intimidating to talk to faculty, but you have to make those connections. And I would say that most, if not all of us, are happy to talk to people and happy to mentor people and do whatever we can to help because we are where we are because we got help from other people.
1: You're talking to our listeners now, right? Not necessarily Malika, she's obviously done due diligence to that, yeah.
0: Talking to all the listeners and say, yeah, don't be afraid to approach us.
2: And you know we I feel like the human biology community is relatively small. It's it's smaller than a lot of other big science communities and in my own experience as you said Chris I've lived lived a very charmed research life. So I've only really had very good experiences but people are nice. They're not jerk faces what you would expect. And I hope that that is kind of the the attitude and the vibe that we as graduate students can continue to promote and that we have a community of you know love and generosity and kindness and helping each other out because honestly the best research is when you have teams of people when you can have different minds coming together the lone wolf researcher the lone wolf scientist it doesn't exist it doesn't really exist you need a team of people you need collaborators you need and not just human biology collaborators but like i could not have done any of my research without my local collaborators My, you know, uh, Nima Sangmo Changchuk, who were both uh, my field assistants in in Nepal, Balshi, my field assistant in Congo. The projects would not happen Mm -hmm. without groups of people who are dedicated to the cause. But
1: just to play devil's advocate a little bit, do you think if you were not at Michigan Mm -hmm. or at Notre Dame, if you were at a school with less prestige, fewer resources, and you were not you? In other words, not everyone is as socially blessed as you. Do you think that you would have managed the same type of success? Is there advice for students who are at a somewhere in the middle of nowhere? I can't think of a...
0: Uh, that's okay. not a that's not a good way to put it. Considering South Bend is kind of the middle of nowhere, but like your small liberal arts
1: college. Yeah, so I was going to say you Albany because that was my alma mater, and I always <laughs> felt that I wasn't as well connected. But here we are. So I don't know if if there is a place that's not well connected if a person knows how to do it, and that's sort of my question.
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. I. Like I said, when I went to Michigan, I was full head for it. I'm like, I'm gonna be a physicist. It's gonna be great. And I just kind of fell into one of the best anthropology departments in the world. That was a complete accident. But you were right. Because I've been at super prestigious universities, I've been with kind of, you know, the big wigs in the field. I say that in quotes because this is, you know, there's this whole conversation about citation and who is a big deal, who is not a big deal. That's pretty big. He's kind of a big deal he's kind of like a huge deal, and that's a that we'll have a conversation about citation streams and who is considered important in the field that is we can we can table that'll we'll, t- we'll talk about that later, but there is a lot of prestige and there's a lot of privilege that comes from being at a university like Michigan and being at a university like Notre Dame and you know i've had the honor of being a part of the ideas program which is from AAPA which is specifically meant to try and increase the diversity in the in the biological anthropological community and it's super important it's really really important to kind of get at the smaller schools that don't have those connections and I think that honestly it's a responsibility of people who are at the bigger schools the more you know quote, unquote, prestigious schools to extend their hands and be open resources to people who don't have those kinds of resources, even graduate students that are in private universities versus public universities. If you are in a public university that doesn't have the same kinds of funding and opportunities, and you're like, you know, I have articles. I can download articles from whatever thing that I want. Not every university can do that. Not every student can do that. But I would always be, I don't know if this is going to be a copyright issue or a legal issue, but... I was always happy to send articles out to you know my my colleagues that may not be able to access them and and I think that that is a conversation and it's like a reckoning that us as biological anthropologists and just anthropologists in general who study inequality who study privilege and diversity need to have to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to do really amazing work that's like a very long answer to your question. But yeah, 100%. I have benefited hugely from being at, you know, these elite institutions and having the resources that I've had. And I feel like it's my responsibility to kind of pay it forward.
1: It's great to hear. And, you know, I know you you, you have to do your dissertation. You have to do your data collection and, and aren't going to go out there and pull along grad students. That's what mentors like Kara and I are are meant to do. But It's nice to hear that you're so open because I do often tell my grad students, hey, shoot an email to Malika, shoot an email to grad students I know and other programs that may be a little bit ahead in terms of where they are in, in the process, and they rarely do. I assure them that you all, people like you, are happy to hear from them and helpful
2: exactly there's this whole I feel like in my generation the millennial generation or whatever there's a kind of a reticence to call cold call people or cold mm-hmm. email people but you know what just just at me on twitter at me on twitter I will respond or you can like you can like something on twitter you can like something on facebook I'm pretty open about my my facebook I'll like add anyone really <laughs> but if, yeah, if you contacting <laughs> If directly contacting is like an anxiety-inducing thing, then you can just do it on social media. Mm -hmm. That's fine. And I'm pretty active on social media. And I I like to post about science a lot on social media because, you know, I'm a super nerd. And I'm like, look at how cool my research is.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I just want to add one other thing because it's relevant. And I, I sent this around to all of our grad students here yesterday. This was in Anthropology News in the very last issue. And one of the things that it recommends, especially for students going the non-academic route with Mm -hmm. research is mobile research teams. And you mentioned the team approach, which is why I bring it up. And I thought that was ingenious. So the academic route isn't for everyone. And you're an example of someone who's talking about that. And they struggle when they come from institutions that are not noteworthy. They're not Notre Dames. They're not, I don't know, Emory's or Harvard's or, you know, name name your top flight school. And they're worried about the job market and starting your social networking now as a graduate student and forming those research teams and reaching out through Twitter, through Facebook, and developing these collaborations is ingenious in in terms of even doing the research and making yourselves marketable as a as a mobile unit i I just found that I'll have Caroline post a link to it if folks are interested, but it's really nice to hear hear that coming from someone who has no need to be connecting with more people, frankly right.
2: Oh well, thank you I you know thrive on human connection, so
1: I get I, that I see that. <laughs>
0: Which makes the Mars mission so fascinating to me because it's going to be the same so three to five people for years. <laughs> so let's let's end on the fun question, shall we? Chris?
2: fun questions.
0: All right. So let's see. What are you currently reading for fun, if anything, if you have time for it right now?
2: Oh, I'm reading like four books for fun simultaneously. <laughs> I don't do anything. I don't do anything small. Everything is oh, like, no. <laughs> no, I, actually, I, I like wrote them down so I could get the authors right. So I am, I'm reading Endurance, which Kara has actually generously lent to me by Scott Kelly, who was the astronaut who went into space for a year. And it's says it's a memoir about his experiences. I just finished two really amazing books. One is a kind of a nonfiction bio. It's called The Glass Universe. By Davis Sobel and it is about the astrophys the That's astronomers funny. and astrophysicists coming out of the early nineteen hundreds that kind of shaped how we understand the universe as it is today it's really good it's really really good and it's it's mainly focused around uh, around the women in that so yeah. I don't know if anyone's heard of Pickering's harem, which is like a very very awfully offensive term. He never came up with that term just for the record that was something that because he was out of harvard and then Harvard and all the you know snooty 1900s harvard people decided to name it that but it talks about you know sexism in in science and you know women making these really amazing contributions that we should really pay attention to because it's this book okay next book was i I feel like it's like skyrocketed to like one of my my favorite books that I've read in the past like five years. It's called The Calculating Stars and it is a lady astronaut novel by Mary Robinette Powell. I think I'm pronouncing it. K-O-W-A-L. So that, so this is why you should be on Twitter because I follow an astronaut, I can't remember, oh, one of the astronauts that I follow on Twitter, she recommended this book because she was a consultant on this book. Mm-hmm. and It is an alternate reality where Right bef- like right after the first American rocket launch, a giant meteor hits the Earth, and it's an extinction event. <laughs> and so they have to ramp up the space program exponentially because they have to get off of Earth, because otherwise all of humanity will die. But it has that similar feeling to like Hidden Figures, where it's talking about the women working behind the scenes, and it's about this one woman who so badly wants to be an astronaut and like all of the things that she's she's doing and trying to figure out and dealing with sexism because it's, it's still nineteen fifties United States. Yeah. It just, you know, has a big gaping hole in it because an asteroid just hit. But the same kinds of social issues and how that impacts how science is done. You know, like all my stuff is space or science related. That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally fine. But You're
1: in like brand. I'm, We're good.
0: I'm on
2: okay.
1: brand. Uh, reading format. Are you an uh, audio book? Are you an uh, iPad? Or are you read the old-fashioned uh, paper versions?
2: That's a great question because all of these books I've read in different mediums. So... <laughs> And like Endurance, I'm reading on paper. I'm reading a hardcover. Glass Universe, I read on Kindle. Calculating Stars, I also read on Kindle. And then this last book, The Alice Network, which is not about space, but it is about spies, about women spies who are badass and awesome. That I've read on Audible because as I mentioned earlier, because I have, I'm have, i driving, I'm, all my fieldwork is domestic for this set of fieldwork. And so I'm driving like crazy, crazy hours, like six, eight hours. And so it's just been consuming as much science and novels as possible so when it's not sausage sausage of science it is uh,
1: thank you thank you and I, I specifically <laughs> asked that because um a lot of grad students especially find they don't have time for leisure reading and when i was in grad school i was commuting as well and i listened to a shit ton of audiobooks and really rediscovered reading during that period of time and i'm still addicted to it it's oh, my sanity so they're,
2: they're they're everything like i started reading audiobooks uh, actually i never really re- i never really started listening to them until going to graduate school and then i was in grad school and i'm like i need something else mm-hmm. it, it, immersed and engaged in science but you need fiction you need, yeah. fiction. You need
0: yep.
2: non-fiction memoirs you need other stories because it makes your brain better and who doesn't want a better brain yep so.
0: no it's true it's true like i always have a fiction going yeah. Constantly, because you just need it. And then I guess the final question, what has been your favorite summer movie?
2: Oh, that's a great question. That's the question I've been the most excited about. <laughs> so I'm really, really looking forward to Crazy Rich Asians, which is coming out August fifteenth. No, I am not I'm not being paid by them or anything, but if you have a chance, read the books. The books are really, really good. It'll make you want to move to Singapore and just eat your body's weight worth in Singaporean street food. <laughs> um, Also, like, any movie that's just about glamorous people living drama lives is everything. I just love it so much. And then I would say Black Panther, which I don't know if that technically counts as a summer movie, but I've watched it four times this summer already, and it was released, like, only a couple months ago. I saw it twice in theaters. Like, I watched it, and then I watched it, like, a week later. (laughs) I've never seen it, what? <laughs> it's so good. But it's, uh Black Panther. The, the music is so good. The, the cinema. It
0: didn't <laughs> feel like a superhero movie, did it? Yeah. It was just a good movie. It's
2: a really,
0: really good movie.
2: Infinity Wars was good also. It The ending was sad.
0: It was almost three hours long, which, was, which breaks so many rules for me. It
2: was <laughs> really, really long. But, you know, if you had to watch any movie this summer, it should be Black Panther. Black Panther was just, it'll change your life. You'll be so happy. You'll be so
0: thrilled. (laughs) Well, there we go, everybody. Uh, This has been Malika Sarma. uh, And I'm so excited that you uh, joined us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much. And if you want to, like I said, I'm always open. If anyone wants to, talk to me about anything, really. Get me on Twitter. My handle is at SkyMall. Not the Sky Mall that you can buy stuff, but it is S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L. I think my Instagram is that too, but don't follow my Instagram unless you just want to see a bunch of cat photos, which I guess we want, <laughs> want to find cat photos. <laughs> um, and then I also recently created a website to that will have all my dissertation work updates on it. It is mssarma research.com. You can check that out and you can get updates on the Acclimate to Extremes, my dissertation project. And I'm going to have fun infographics because we've got to be able to communicate to non scientists about the cool work we're doing.
1: Cool. Awesome.
2: Thank
0: you so much.
2: Yes, of course.
1: (laughs) I've been Chris. Um, You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter.
0: And I'm Kara. You can find me at Kara Akabach on Twitter.
1: And if you hadn't figured it out yet, we are the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. Bam! Public
0: Relations Committee. (laughs) All right, guys. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks.